precursors to the Second World War were manifold and complex, but I have to give them some attention in this series, because some of those precursors and much of the aftermath of that war held significant impacts on the political, social and economic landscapes that shaped national policies in Antarctica. Post-First World War Europe featured new national and political boundaries for nations and factions within nations to divide over, foremost among them the trend towards communism. The Bolshevik Revolution that saw the United Soviet Socialist Republic arise from the dog end of Tsarist Russia, and which saw Russian troops withdrawn from the First World War trenches to fight the developing civil war in their homeland, had its roots in the same arms deals and political buffoonery that saw Europe devolve into total war. Russia borrowed French money to buy British arms. Much of the machinations at play in these dealings falling out from a single Greek poseur and salesman, Basil Zaharov, if that was his real name. And I direct listeners to episodes Tumpty Tum and Tumpty Tum Plus One of Behind the Bastards for Robert Evans' thorough treatment of that Machiavellian mongrel's role in the arms race that condemned Europe to colossal bloodshed. The Tsar's debts accrued in obtaining munitions to keep up with the neighbours, gave the revolutionaries rhetorical ammunition in the war of words used to spur the workers to the barricades, and the echoes are still rattling the planet today, far louder than those of the Reformation or the French Revolution, regardless how much you see the roots of the latter lying in the former adventures in human emancipation from the strictures of oppressive structures. Half of Europe adopted communist principles, while the other half armed up to oppose communist attack, which spurred the communists to arm up in light of their capitalist neighbours' armament programs. I don't know if Zaharoff was the sort to rub his hands with glee, or other unguents or liniments, but it's easy to imagine the scrupulous prick working up some digital friction as the arms races playing out in Europe picked up the economic slack caused by the end of the war he armed both sides of. War-weary, Britain and the USA refused to acknowledge the rise of communist or fascist or both governments in Europe as problematic, and anyone advocating rearmament was labelled a warmongering crank and dismissed, because contemplating another war at the scale of the previous one was icky and therefore poor form among the polite classes. Britain always kept its navy strong for the sake of imperial management form, but the army and air force decayed into mechanical obsolescence and numerical irrelevance in the decades following the First World War. The USA barely kept armed forces other than a navy on the payroll in the interwar years, and attempting to spark the beginnings of a thought about a rearmament program in the wake of the First World War and the Great Depression nearly cost Franklin Delano Roosevelt the presidential election of 1938. Germany was left economically wrecked. Hang on. I put this in the episode about the Nazis. The Great Depression kicked off in the USA, but its impacts reached around the globe. International trade diminished. Where nations with abundant natural resources weathered this period of autarky with austerity and high unemployment, nations reliant on international trade, such as Germany and Japan, suffered the worst of depression impacts. In Germany, the economic problems caused by the Depression were compounded by, and indistinguishable from, 
those imposed by the Treaty of Versailles, and the nation embraced Hitler, who blamed the entirety of their problems on the treaty and on Jews. He became the visionary who could lead the nation out of the economic and political wilderness and make Germany great again. German ingenuity and business acumen saw the nation re-establish itself as a military force by the cunning use of overseas arms manufacturers, sometimes simply a relocation of a German company and associated factories to a neighbouring nation, as was the case with Dornier, and some less than actually cunning nods to subterfuge within German borders, some factories producing armoured vehicles, doubling up as producing civilian goods any time anyone came inspecting. Germany joined the side of the monarchist, Catholic, conservative nationalists, rising up in 1936 against the left-wing governance of the Second Spanish Republic, and showed Franco's nascent fascists how to really fash. The Spanish Civil War taught German military leaders how to best deploy and use the new technology available to them, and galvanised German pilots and fighting units into the elite and cohesive forces Hitler released on Europe shortly after the end of the Peninsula fighting in early 1939. This experienced German army and air force swept through Poland, the Low Countries, France and Norway, and nearly aced Britain but for a handful of pilots able to adapt ineffective British interwar defensive fighter tactics in time to effectively counter the German pilots, most of them nearly veterans from the Legion Condor, during the Battle of Britain and to thereby postpone Operation Sea Lion, the proposed seaborne invasion of Airstrip 1, I mean, the British Isles. The Spanish Civil War was the first major flare-up of capitalist-communist tensions brewing in Europe. The same instability setting the stage for the German Blitzkrieg attacks that became the widely accepted historical marker for the start of the Second World War in Europe. As everyone knows, you should never start a land war in Asia, but... In the Far East, Japan was seeking to guarantee its economic and industrial development by imposing the super-happy fun-time Pacific co-prosperity sphere on its surrounds. Unable to thrive under the diminished trade experienced after the onset of the Great Depression, Japanese forces secured resources for their homeland by invading Manchuria in 1931. The first official declaration of war in the morass of conflicts we generally refer to as World War II arose from Mao Zedong in 1932, though the scale of his Chinese communist forces at the time couldn't do much to resist Japanese attempts at imperialism. The fight mostly fell to Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist forces, but after the deaths of 800,000 soldiers and the displacement of 50 million Chinese civilians, the nationalists withdrew to try to draw breath to train new recruits, and to disseminate the hard lessons drawn of engagements with the Japanese, while the Japanese tried assembling a puppet government to give a semblance of international credibility to the management of their new territory. Having learnt to employ modern military technology from French, German and British mentors, the Japanese military constituted a formidable force the Chinese couldn't oust and the invaders continued their annexations until the new frontier reached the Russian border. The Japanese were unwilling to fight at the scale Russia could bring to the fore, and Russia was too concerned with German aggression on its western border to help China, so the Japanese held their Chinese territory and began expanding the co-prosperity sphere into the Pacific. Neither Japan or Germany 
set out to rule the whole world. Both nations recognised they weren't well prepared for a conflict at the scale of the First World War. They sought to expand their holdings in small increments through short, sharp engagements, while they held technological and numerical upper hands, expecting the nations eager to maintain the status quo to continue practising appeasement. So long as they didn't overreach themselves or tread on the toes of anyone able to retaliate, they looked to be safe for their newly acquired territories. Likely, they would have succeeded in keeping their gains had Japan not attacked Pearl Harbour and had Germany not attacked Russia. The former was deemed necessary because Japanese leaders considered the US ability and willingness under Roosevelt's directives to control resources shipped around the Pacific too great a threat to national security to ignore. The latter was deemed too communist for Germany to bear, and Operation Barbarossa sought to kick the communists beyond any capacity to pose a threat to German expansions eastward. The attacks led the USA and Russia to engage, and the newly opened fronts stretched the resources and technology of the aggressors beyond sustainability. There are plenty of podcasts out there that map the events and outcomes of the Second World War and can give you an ideological spin on why it constituted a just war or an unjust war or a war for freedom or a war of oppression or a great patriotic war. That's not my role here. I've done a bit of scene setting and joined some dots between economics and politics that hold relevance in the lead up to and the aftermath of the morass of conflicts that are generally collectively labelled the Second World War. Many Antarctic veterans served their nations during the Second World War, and many veterans of that war later joined expeditions to Antarctica. Most of those whose lives this series touches on will receive attention as their expeditions receive coverage, but there's a few who didn't return to Antarctica after the war, and whose war record warrants mention. At the outbreak of war, Hjalmar Risa Larsen returned to his role in the Royal Norwegian Naval Air Service. The German invasion of Denmark and Norway took just on two months, and Risa Larsen escaped the occupation across the border to Sweden. From there, he travelled to Moscow, then Paris, and then London, where he joined the Norwegian government and its senior military leaders in exile. Risa Larsen was sent to Canada to establish and run Little Norway, a training airbase for the Norwegian Air Force in Ontario. BBC radio broadcasts of Risa Larsen speaking to his countrymen in occupied Norway spurred many young men to escape and join the Norwegian Navy and Air Force abroad. Risa Larsen became commander of all Norway's air complement from London in 1941, but criticism of his leadership by the pilots under him saw Risa Larsen resign his role in the immediate wake of the war and in dudgeon, returning to his employment in Norwegian airlines and civil airspace management. Bernd Balkan served in the United States Army Air Force during the war, his expertise in high-latitudes aviation coming to the fore in his leadership at transit air bases in Greenland. Search and rescue operations using Catalina flying boats saw Balkan directly responsible for the survival of many American aircrew brought down on the Greenland glacial dome by mechanical problems or navigational errors. Balkan also flew unarmed Liberator missions into Sweden, to deliver negotiators seeking to buy up supplies of strategic resources from Swedish interests, more to prevent their being sold to German interests than to actually secure the resources for use in the USA, 
were the industrial capacity of the nation that led to the PR label the arsenal of democracy was kicking along independent of Swedish ball bearings and such. Balkan's final contribution to the war against the Nazis involved dropping equipment, supplies and experts to aid the resistance fighters operating in the Norwegian mountains. As mentioned in episode 93, Balkan never returned to Antarctica after parting company with Ellsworth and Wilkins, but he continued to fly and to lead flyers in high-latitude operations until his retirement in the 1960s. John Rymill volunteered for naval service at the outbreak of the war, but was deemed medically unfit due to injuries incurred during his three years operating the British Graham Land expedition. Frustrated, he donated a large swathe of Panola Station to make two additional farms for returned service personnel. Before long, his navigational knowledge served the Royal Australian Navy in the tracking of maritime resources from Melbourne, and Rymel demobbed from the Navy as a lieutenant in 1945. Just a short one, but there's some information in there that I think needed to be sown before we carry on with the actual Antarctic side of things. Thanks this episode to Alex, Imogen and Anthony, who've helped me with some image selection recently. Take care and appreciate your coffee. (laughs) 